From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, Democrats in Congress take aim at your First Amendment freedoms. Missouri Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler is here on today's vote on the Inequality Act, the danger it poses to your children and grandchildren and your faith and what you, yes, you can do about it. And we can't spend too much. Now's the time we should be spending. Now's the time to go big. That was President Joe Biden at his recent CNN town hall meeting, pushing for his nearly $2 trillion blue state bailout, also known as the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, which will be voted on the House uh, probably before the week's end. And then it will go to the U.S. Senate. We'll be joined by Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn. She'll also weigh in on the tactics Democratic lawmakers are using to force cable and Internet providers to drop conservative news outlets like Newsmax and One America News. And Travis Weber, vice president of policy here at FRC, joins me on an enlightening exchange or lack of exchange between Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and President Biden's transgendered nominee for the Department of Health and Human Services. And more evidence in support of what I said months ago, the silver lining to the coronavirus is how it has exposed government education. Corey DeAngeles, the executive director at Educational Freedom Institute, is here with more on that topic. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you have joined Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins on Gab. Check it out, Gab.com. And by the way, I want to welcome some new stations to the Washington Watch Network. It's a pleasure to extend a special welcome to our new listeners tuning in through WPAE and KPAE of Sound Radio. That's back in my home area reaching uh, greater Baton Rouge area, including uh, my hometown of Central. Washington Watch can now be heard on Sound Radio weekdays at 7 p.m. We're also especially grateful to Roche Callender, who has made this possible. Welcome to the Washington Watch family. All right, the president um, pushing forward with his coronavirus relief bill that would cost $1.9 trillion dollars. Um, this package includes spending on almost everything. I mean, there is spending in there for the virus and the relief, but there is so much more in this. We're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about how Democrats are targeting Newsmax, OAN, and Fox, saying that their information is misinformation. Joining us now, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. She serves as a member of the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. Senator, welcome back to the program. It is good to be with you, and you really are hitting on the topics of, today, of the day today. I'm telling you, it is. Uh, there's a lot going on in this free speech arena right now. Well, and, and there is a, a big effort to try to silence anyone who would challenge what the left is doing right now. And you've seen this up close and personal, and the only way to combat bad it is to exercise our first our first amendment freedoms while we still have them 
it definitely is. And, you know, Tony, I will tell you so many people that I'm speaking with that voted for Joe Biden for president. They said, well, you know, we think the president, President Trump is boisterous. And, and now they're going, oh my goodness. Uh, we had no idea that they were going to do these things. Uh, we thought this was just campaign talk. And no, it wasn't just campaign talk. This is what they are doing. They are trying to silence conservatives. They are trying to take away the ability of the people to hear two sides of a story. Right. It is the cancel culture run amok. Um, along those lines, two members of uh, Congress, two members of the House, uh, former colleagues of yours over there in the House, Anna Eshoo and uh, Jerry uh, McNerney, McNerney. Yeah. Uh, sent letters to, I think, about 14 different companies, including AT&T and other carriers that carry, um, you know, the television programs through their various um, uh, platforms, as well as uh, cable and our Internet. Um, basically, I mean, they are strong arming them, trying to get them to drop Every conservative outlet like Newsmax, America, uh, One American News, and even Fox uh, saying that they are responsible for airing misinformation. Uh, of course, nothing in their letter points to MSNBC uh, and uh, CNN for the disinformation that they've put out there. Right. And what they are trying to do is say, if you do not completely agree with us, if you do not submit to our way of thinking, conform to our way of doing, we will shut you up. So this is their game plan. And this is what they are pushing to do. And you had this letter from Representatives Eshoo and McNerney, and basically they are saying you outlets, whether it's Newsmax or OAN or Fox, you are spewing misinformation. You are the cause of people coming to uh, to to D.C., and this gives us the reason to come in here and say to people who are carrying your channels, you need to reconsider this. Now, think about that. Yeah. They are trying to get your cable carrier to drop Fox or Newsmax or OAN, and why? Because they have a political opinion, a difference of a of a political opinion with them. It's so un-American. In fact, uh, law professor Jonathan Turley, certainly not a conservative, but he has been an advocate for the First Amendment. He says, quote, the letter is not just chilling, it's positively glacial. This is, I mean, I, I don't know how they do this and keep, a, a, you know, a, a and not be embarrassed by a, a full-out attack on the First Amendment. They, I, I don't know, I just, I, I cannot get into their minds how they think they can do this in broad daylight. Well, and the thing is, what they're trying to do, they feel like conservatives are divided right now because you have our uh, friends on the right. There are some that say, well, you supported President Trump too much. There are others that say you didn't support him enough. So what they're trying to do is drive a wedge in here and say, look, the Republicans are divided. And in this 
sliver of time they're trying to end all conservative communication or anything that would be a difference of opinion as to where they are right now. Yeah, something we've got to continue to raise the uh, alarm over, shine the light on, whatever analogy yes. you want to use, because this this is extremely dangerous. I want it to, is very dangerous. I want yes. to transition to another topic you've been working on, and that is the relief bill, so-called yes. relief bill. It's being pushed forward, almost $2 trillion. Uh, it would more than double the minimum wage if it goes through. What kind of impact is this going to have on small businesses? Well, not only small businesses, but small county governments. And, Tony, I was on the phone earlier today with one of my county mayors, and this is one of their biggest concerns. He said, you know, if this thing goes through and you have this federally mandated wage, we are going to have to raise our property taxes mm-hmm. 40% in order to pay our employees. So this is the kind of real-world impact. Now, for our companies, uh, one of our Tennessee small business manufacturers said, look, we base our, our pay scale on what we call minimum wage plus. So they base it off of that seven twenty-five an hour, and then they plus it up from there. And um, if right. you were to put a $15 an hour minimum wage in place, it would totally disrupt the scale. They said what they would have to do in order to make the numbers work is to eliminate a shift and cut back on their production because they would not be able to afford to make these to make their product and get it into the marketplace so that is lost jobs lost productivity that is losing their place in the marketplace and they feel that this would force them to have to import more of the product that they have been making domestically, import more from other countries. Yeah. The uh, This issue was uh, discussed in the town hall meeting that the president did recently on CNN. He was asked about this by someone who was concerned about the impact. And he said, quote, let's say you said you're going to increase the minimum wage from seven twenty-five an hour between now and the year 2025 to $12 an hour to $13 an hour. You'll double someone's pay and the impact on business would be absolutely de minimis. It would grow the GDP, Biden said. Well, that is incorrect. It would not grow the GDP. It would end up shrinking the GDP because they like to say, oh, it would create 400,000 jobs. They're not telling you about the 1.6 million jobs that it would eliminate. And that's the little secret they don't want to talk about. And it, it'll keep those that need that first job experience to get into the marketplace that, you know, will then give them a stepping stone to higher incomes because they have greater experience. This is going to wall out and basically keep a lot of young people from getting that first job. 
You're exactly right because many times you have an employer that will hire someone who's 16, 17 years old, and what do they do? They earn a training wage, mm-hmm. and that is where they start. It is basically a lower entry-level wage, or as many employers call it, a training wage. Mm-hmm. And after that individual has worked three or six months, then they begin to get raises. And they learn how to be productive. They learn how to work because that employer and his team are taking the time to teach them how to work. Right. That's how I got started. Uh, Marsha, almost out of time, but there's a number of attacks on the life issue, Hyde Amendment, um, Uh, in this uh, relief bill as well. You're exactly right. They want to get rid of all the Hyde Amendment language. They want to get rid of... um, any of the provisions that would deal with no federal funding to abortion and uh, the Mexico City policy, all of that they just want to wipe away. They even are changing the Paycheck Protection Program so that Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. yep. can apply for PPP loans. Putting money into the pockets of uh, their ally, Planned Parenthood. Uh, Senator Blackburn, thanks so much for taking time out of a busy day to uh, to join us. As always, great to talk with you. Good talking to you. Thanks. Bye-bye now. All right, folks, you need to weigh in on this. You need to contact uh, your congressman. You may say, well, that's not going to do any good. May not, but they still need to hear from you. It will make a difference in the Senate. You need to be contacting your senators, making sure that uh, if you have a Republican, if you have Republican senators, they stick together. If you've got a Democrat, convince them. I mean, there's a whole host of uh, issues here as to why uh, the, the, this policy is bad. president needs to work with others in um, coming up with something that is consensus-based. All right, next, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler joins us about the Inequality Act. That's next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I'd finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. 
Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Gab, if you're not, you should be. It's at Tony underscore Perkins. All right. Uh, That's on Gab. All right. With Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, occupying the Oval Office, it's no surprise that Democrats are pushing extreme legislation. We just mentioned the massive spending that would come from the latest uh, coronavirus relief proposal, the, the blue state bailout, propping up Planned Parenthood, put more, putting more money in their slush funds. But uh, Democrats are also trying to make strides in their social policy with measures like the Inequality Act. This is, as I've been talking about for weeks now, the most egregious attack on religious freedom to ever come out of Congress. And unfortunately, this ideology is already spreading through our schools, thanks to executive orders by President Biden. So what are we to do about it? How do we stand up against this radical agenda that, quite frankly, undermines parental rights and it threatens the future of our children? Joining me now to talk about this is Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler. She represents the 4th Congressional District of Missouri, and she spoke earlier today on the House floor against the Inequality Act. Congresswoman Hartzler, welcome back to the program. Uh, thank you, Tony. Good to be here. Now, you spoke uh, passionately in opposition to uh, the uh, what I call the Inequality Act. In fact, I think you used the same term on the House floor. Why are you opposed to this legislation? Well, it's devastating in all fronts. Not only does it uh, take what is good and, and it puts it in law um, as they, 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 it's really evil, but they call it good. And it's going to change every aspect of our life, decimate religious liberties, and also promote taxpayer-funded abortion all in one act. And so by hijacking the Civil Rights Act and putting in there as a protected class, sexual orientation and gender identity, it's going to upend women's sports. It's going to harm parental rights. 
it's going to impugn on the religious freedoms of all Americans and certainly nonprofits, adoption agencies. It's going to decimate the conscience protections of our medical professionals. And it's going to um, be very harmful to girls and, and to women. Um, so it, it must be defeated. And um, I'm certainly hopeful that uh, in the Senate will will defeat this and we can stop this Trojan horse that will upend uh, all aspects of our life. Congresswoman Hartzler, uh, this is this is not a, uh, a hypothetical in terms of the threats to religious freedom, to women's sports. That's already happened. I mean, that is happening. What this would do is systematize it. This would make it throughout the entire country at every level. I mean, this is one of the most far-reaching pieces of legislation that goes beyond anything we've ever seen in terms of how it affects businesses, how it affects schools, how it affects nonprofits, including churches. I mean, this is far-reaching. And I don't understand how those on the left who support this can say with a straight face that this isn't going to affect women's sports, it's not going to affect religious freedom. We've already seen what it's done. Yes, the, the, the truth is a tricky thing and that we can see the impact of similar laws at the state level. And it's been, uh, it's just been, it's just decimated the, the lives and the rights of individuals. Here's three examples. So I used to be a track coach. I ran uh, track in high school, played basketball, other sports. And you have Connecticut, their athletic association that determined a few years ago that transgender males, uh, biological males that identify as females can compete in women's sports. And as a result, we have two uh, transgender males there that have won 15 state uh, championship titles, uh, set 13 records, and we have girls there that have been denied the ability to get those first-place medals, their second-place medals, and most importantly, those scholarships, and that has been stolen from them. And this will happen all across the country. We switch to Ohio. We have parents, a, a parents there, a family, where their parental rights, were taken away by a judge because they simply did not agree with their daughter having testosterone uh, hormonal treatment so that she could transition to a male. The judge there took away their parental rights, gave it to the grandparent. And this could happen to parents all across the country just simply because you love your child and you want to make the best health care decision uh, for them. And we can look to adoption agencies in several states right. who um, have been terminated their ability to, to provide adoption services because they uphold their religious beliefs and wanting their children that they uh, place it for adoption to be in a loving home with a mother and a father. And we've had hospitals in multiple states that were sued because the doctors and the hospitals refused to do a gender transition surgery on a young person. Uh, and the doctor said, this is not necessary. This is going to harm this child permanently. We don't want to participate. And they were sued. So we have these examples of tangible uh, ramifications of this policy. And like you said, if the Equality Act passes, this will be slam dunk across the United States and people of faith will have no way and uh, no recourse because the bill stipulates that religion cannot be used as a claim or an objection right. to adhering to this new form of what they call equality. And so it uh, undermines the First Amendment. Uh, it is 
terrible. Well, we're going to do everything we can to stop it. We could spend all day talking about it, but we just have a couple minutes left. I don't want to transition to what we can do about it because you're an example of this, a former teacher, home economics teacher. Uh, you saw needs in your community end up running for office. Uh, there is an opportunity and a need for parents right now to step in the gap on behalf of their children in their local communities by running for school board, and it can be done. Absolutely. If people of faith don't step up and run for office, then we're only going to get people uh, in office who don't share our views and values and who push these detrimental policies. And certainly with these school closures that we have seen, parents need to rise up. I hope it spawns a movement of parents retaking control Mm -hmm. of their schools for the betterment and the benefit of their children. We need Christians who have compassion, uh, competence, and courage to step up and to be willing to run, to be at that seat of the table, and to help make these decisions, to get our kids back into school, and certainly to protect them with policies of what is taught in that school and make sure that it's positive for our children. And you've got a great resource for those parents. It's called Running God's Way. It's how to run a campaign. Very basic, very easy. Running for the school board is not that difficult. Uh, Vicki, we're out of time, but we've got a link on our website to your book, Running God's Way. It's a great resource for parents to take on the school board, city council, state legislature. We need it. We need those folks out there. Congresswoman Hartzer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, don't go away. We're coming back on the other side of the break with more Washington Watch. Don't go away. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I'd definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh?
Welcome back. I'm Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, earlier today, and we're seeing a whole bunch of these. We've been talking about it all week. We're going to talk more about it next week. Uh, nominees from the Biden administration appearing before the U.S. Senate. Well, today, in the uh, in front of the HELP Committee, uh, Rachel Levin, uh, Levine, uh, who uh, he has been, or she has, he's a transgendered individual. He has been appointed. Uh, Selected by Joe Biden as the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, joining me now to talk more about this is Travis Weber, Vice President of Policy here at the Family Research Council. Travis, welcome. Thank you, Tony. All right. We're going to play a clip of an exchange between Rand Paul, Senator from Kentucky, and uh, Rachel Levine. Uh, now, set it up for us. What, what was taking place? Yes, so Tony, um, he is being nominated uh, for a position of Assistant Secretary at HHS, important position. The hearing was bringing out matters relevant to that. So Rand Paul asked a simple question about gender transition for proce- uh, procedures for minors, and this is what we're going to hear today. I mean, this highlights how it's important for people to know Levine's background in Pennsylvania and the type of people Biden is nominating and the consequences of this. And we're going to hear a you know, pretty clear illustration of that with this clip. All right, folks, it's a little long, but I want you to listen to it because it is very enlightening. Do you support the government intervening to override the parent's consent to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and or amputation surgery of breasts and genitalia? You have said that you're willing to accelerate the protocols for street kids. I'm alarmed that poor kids with no parents who are homeless and distraught, you would just go through this and allow that to happen to a minor. I would hope that you would have compassion for Kira Bell, who's a 23-year-old girl who was confused with her identity. At 14, she read on the Internet about something about transsexuals. She thought, well, maybe that's what I am. She ended up getting these puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones. She had her breast amputated. But here's what ultimately she says now. And this is a very insightful from decision from someone who made a mistake but was led to believe this was a good thing by the medical community. I made a brash decision as a teenager, as a lot of teenagers do, trying to find confidence and happiness, except now the rest of my life will be negatively affected, she said, adding that the medicalized gender transitioning was a very temporary, superficial fix for a very complex identity issue. What I'm alarmed at is that you're not willing to say absolutely minors shouldn't be making decisions to amputate their breast or to amputate their genitalia. For most of our history, we believe that minors don't have full rights and the parents need to be involved. So I'm alarmed that you won't say with certainty that minors should not have the ability to make the decision to take hormones that will affect them for the rest of their life. Will you make a more firm decision on whether or not minors should be involved in these decisions? Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. Uh, And if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff about the standards of care and the complexity of this field. Let it go into the record that the witness refused to answer the question. The question is a very specific one. Should minors be making these momentous decisions? For most of the history of medicine, we wouldn't let you have a cut sewn up in the ER. But you're willing to let a minor take things that prevent their puberty, and you think they get that back? 
You give a woman testosterone enough that she grows a beard, you think she's going to go back looking like a woman when you stop the testosterone? You have permanently changed them. Infertility is another problem. None of these drugs have been approved for this. They're all being used off-label. I find it ironic that the left that went nuts over hydroxychloroquine being used possibly for COVID are not alarmed that these hormones are being used off-label. There's no long-term studies. We don't know what happens to them. We do know that there are dozens and dozens of people who have been through this who, who regret that this happened and a permanent change happened to them. And, you know, if you've ever been around children, 14-year-olds can't make this decision. In the gender dysphoria clinic in England, 10% of the kids are between the ages of 3 and 10. We should be outraged that someone's talking to a 3-year-old about changing their sex. And uh, Travis, one of the reasons he said let the record show that the witness would not answer the question is because that answer that he gave, that uh, Levine gave, he gave the same one repeatedly um, and avoided every question that was asked by Senator Rand Paul. Yeah, Tony, I mean, it was a total dodge because it's a legit question that the left does not want to answer. Do you really want to give and allow children to receive these harmful, mutilating procedures? No. And this is, this is, I'm glad this came up today because this issue is so important. This is why we've engaged on this at the federal and state level. There's a bill moving in Alabama that would address it now. Our experts have written on the harms caused by this and how this effectively sterilizes children. Um, this issue needs to be seen and observed, and this exchange needs to be known by people because this is the kind of person that President Biden wants to put in charge of health and human services or assist in, in being in charge of that agency. Uh, and they're not even recognizing, they're dodging a question about protecting children, protecting children's health. Very revealing, and I really hope people take note of this exchange. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, uh, a hat tip to Senator Rand Paul for his courage and boldness, because quite frankly, we're already seeing it in the press today. He's being uh, accused of bullying a transgender appointee or nominee. Uh, so he is drilling down on the facts, and I commend him for doing so. Travis, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, on the other side of the break, I've said this many times, the silver lining to the coronavirus is that it has exposed public education on many fronts. We're going to be talking about that next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. 
Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash hide. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservatives, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back. I'm Tony Perkins, and you're listening to Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. I've been saying this for uh, for months, that the silver lining to the coronavirus is education and the fact that it's being exposed, public education. It's being exposed, and parents are looking at what their kids are being taught, and the nation is now beginning to see that the teacher unions are not about educating the children. They're about protecting and feathering their own nest. And quite frankly, parents are tired of it. This is a tremendous moment in education, I believe, in this country, and so does my next guest. Joining me now to talk about this, Corey DeAngelis. He uh, has written an article in the National Review about how uh, school choice has advanced in the uh, the past year. It's moving across states. Parents are looking at it. In part, it's because we've got a great unintentional ally, teacher unions. Uh, he is the director of school choice at Reason Foundation, the executive director at Educational Freedom Institute, and an adjunct scholar at Cato Institute. Corey, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So, Corey, you see this as what's happening here. Public education is being exposed. There's a a break here, a chink in their uh, armor, if you will, as they they have fended off most efforts to try to give parents a choice in education. That could be changing. Yeah, the way that I put it is that COVID didn't break the public school system. It was already broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID-19 simply shined a light on the main problem when it comes to K-12 education, 
which is a massive power imbalance between the producers of the services, the public school monopoly and the teachers unions and the individual families and their children. You know, it's one thing for your school to continue to get your children's education dollars despite failing to meet their educational needs year after year. But it's another conversation altogether for those same institutions to continue getting your children's education dollars regardless of whether they even open their doors for business. So right. I think families are seeing this, uh, that they're getting a bad deal here this year in particular, that they're getting the short end of the stick. And they're seeing that, you know, if I, if my grocery store doesn't reopen, I can take my money elsewhere. Why not if my school doesn't reopen? Why can't I take my children's education dollars elsewhere? So if you also look at surveys on support for funding students directly or what most people call school choice, there's been a surge in support for these types of alternatives to allow the funding to follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. Uh, for example, a real clear opinion research polling nationwide found that support for school choice initiatives jumped by 10 percentage points in just a few months from April 2020 to August 2020. And Morning Consult did a similar nationwide poll, similarly finding nationwide that support for every type of school choice that they asked about, education savings accounts, charter schools, voucher programs, tax credit scholarships, all of these uh, uh, funding mechanisms, mechanisms that allow the funding to follow the child wherever they're getting an education, support has surged for all of those types since last year and since uh, the spring of 2020. So families are figuring it out. And I think you're right. This is one of the only silver linings of the pandemic that people are figuring out that there's no good reason to fund institutions, particularly when they're closed, when you can fund the students directly instead. Right. And I, let me just be very blunt, Corey. I think the, the teacher unions think we're stupid uh, because they, they've been hiding behind this thing. Well, there's, it's, it's too dangerous to open the schools, and, and so yeah. we, we have to keep them closed. When you contrast what public or government schools have done compared to the private sector, the private sector has been fighting to open back up. And, they've, and, and all of the science says, uh, here's, here's an alert here for those on the left who believe in science. Um, the science says it's safe for, co for kids to go to school. Yeah, I mean, you look at the reports from the CDC research in JAMA. You look at the reports from Brown University economist Emily Oster. You look at the report from 191 different countries from the United Nations UNICEF saying that there's no consistent link between reopening of schools and trans community transmission of the virus. You look at the, the nationwide study from Tulane University researchers suggesting that reopening of schools is not linked to uh, COVID hospitalizations. There's tons of evidence suggesting that there's that it's okay to open the schools and that they don't meaningfully uh, uh, contribute to community transmission. Yet there's a lot of cost to keeping the schools closed in terms of academic failures going up for particular school districts and even nationwide. Students losing months and months of learning, and inequities going up for the least advantaged as well. And then you also see the deleterious effects on mental health of the students right. and even the, the physical aspects of, of students when it comes to things like childhood obesity going up as a result of, of keeping the schools closed So, so who well. do they think they're fooling? I mean, we, we, the, the private schools are meeting. The science says they should be meeting, but they're saying, oh, too dangerous. We need to have, in some cases, teachers remote, students there in person. In some cases, in other cases, they want to just keep the schools closed. 
Well, they're not fooling anybody. I mean, you're right. If you look at the stark contrast between the private and the public sector, you had private schools in Kentucky, for example, fighting against the governor, taking the, the case all the way up to the Supreme Court for their right to reopen their doors for business for their customers. You had similar court battles in federal district courts in places like Michigan and Ohio. And But the thing that's interesting is with the teachers' unions, in Kentucky, they celebrated the decision to keep the, keep the schools closed. And in, in a lot of places, like Chicago and other places across the United States, we've consistently been seeing the opposite uh, fight from the public school teacher union sector, where they've been fighting to keep the doors closed. And the difference, I think, is one of incentives, that right. one of these sectors gets your money regardless right. of whether they open their doors for business. And so the only way to fix that it's to allow the children to take their education dollars to wherever they're getting an education, which could be the public school, but it could be a private school, right. too. And I'm optimistic because we, we now have a majority of states, about 26 or 27 states as of uh, yesterday, where legislators have introduced bills to allow the children to take their education dollars to a private provider of the service. And that would incentivize the public schools to do a better job. You know, Corey, you actually cite this in your article, which by the folks you can folks you can read at TonyPerkins.com, that these government schools actually prove the point that you just said, that when there's a monetary incentive, they will open up. You made uh, the point that uh, one school that remain or one set of uh, one district that remains closed in terms of K through 12 providers. Uh, they're closed, but the same school buildings for in-person child care services, which are charging families directly, they're open for the child care, but not for the classrooms. Yeah, that that really, um, you know, that's like the one example that people are just, it just doesn't pass the sniff test, right? People are, are seeing that these districts were issuing statements saying they couldn't reopen for in-person learning, but they were opening the same buildings. As for in-person child care services while charging families out of pocket in addition to what they were already paying through the property tax system because they were having private sector employees from places like the YMCA coming into the school buildings and providing the in-person child care services while teachers in the public school sector were getting to stay home and provide the virtual um, uh, instruction uh, over Zoom or other platforms. So, you know, it was good for the employees because they got, you know, the public sector employees got to stay home. The private sector employees got to make an extra buck. But the people getting left out of all of these conversations are the individual families. And look, they got the short end of the stick there, too. They had to pay out of pocket in right. addition to what they're already paying for the property taxes. And then there's just been a ton of stuff like hypocrisy over the past few months. You saw the Chicago Teachers Union board member uh, tweeting from Puerto Rico uh, about how schools aren't safe enough to reopen for in-person work, which got a lot of people worked up because they correctly pointed out that, you know, it begs the question, if it's safe enough to travel and vacation in person, why isn't it safe enough to return to work in your own city in person? Yeah, really uh, good so, I mean, a lot of these little things, you don't even really have to look at the science, which is in, the favor, in favor of reopening schools. The preponderance of the evidence suggests that you can reopen schools safely. But uh, the, I think the more compelling case is looking at all these things like the schools reopening for child care services and seeing the, the stark contrast between the public and the private sector. Right. In, Very in, telling. In a, ca a Catholic school in Sacramento even rebranded itself as a daycare by retraining all of its employees as child care workers to get around the ridiculous regulation in Sacramento County that said that daycares could open but schools couldn't open. Yeah. And we didn't see that kind of 
activity from the public school no. sector. And it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It's just the incentives but are all messed up in the case. But that's why the free market works. The free market works. We ought to try it in education because the more money we've been spending more and more money with each passing year in public education. But at the same time, the results have been going down. The return on investment shows that it's a failure. We need to try something else. But before we move to that next, I want to talk about that uh, because you've also done some work in looking at uh, charter schools and how they uh, bring a better return on the investment. But I, I want to just, again, point to what the public uh, or the government schools, or the teacher unions primarily, how they're afraid of competition because not only are they not reopening, but they're trying to lobby for legislators to lock children in to a closed public system that's not even functioning, not allowing them to take their dollars to charter schools or to private schools. Yeah, they're putting the needs of the system in front of the needs of the individual families, and that's shameful. I mean, we saw this right when the pandemic struck in March of 2020 and schools closed down. You had the Oregon Teachers Union lobbying to the government to make it illegal to switch to virtual charter schools, which are defined as public schools all across the, the country. And so families were left scrambling. They, they, they understood that the virtual charter schools had been doing uh, remote learning effectively for decades. But the teachers union lobbied to protect their monopoly at the expense of these families. And we saw similar actions in California and Pennsylvania with their administrators association lobbying to make it illegal to switch to schools at the worst time possible when families were economically struggling and struggling to find an adequate education for their children. Um, so, we, you know, this is this is rent seeking and. Uh, we should prioritize the needs of students right. over the needs of a system. And and put parents into the equation because who, uh, in most cases, who has a greater interest in the well-being and future performance of their children than parents? And, and just to summarize what you said a moment ago, going back to the, the good news, and this is folks where you need to be engaging, to be checking out, finding out what's happening in your state. But legislators in 23 states have introduced bills just in the past few months to fund students instead of systems. Five of these states, as uh, Corey uh, lays out in his article, Arizona, Iowa, Indiana, West Virginia, and Kansas have already passed school choice bills out of ch- out of uh, a chamber. And three others, Florida, Missouri, South Dakota, have passed bills out of committees. This thing is uh, building up steam, isn't it, Corey? Yep, and just yesterday night, after that article was written, Missouri uh, uh, perfected their bill in an eighty-one to seventy or eighty-three to seventy-one vote, or something along those lines. So we might have another state passing something out of the chamber today. I believe the full vote on the floor is today in Missouri. So we might have, you know, additional states passing things out of a chamber. And yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. Look, ninety-two percent of education funding at the K to twelve level comes from state and right. local levels. Right. So despite the fact that we ha- we don't have a friendly administration at the federal level when it comes to school choice, there are states that are that are making things happen, uh, and that's that's where school choice expansion matters the most. You and know, look, we already fund students directly when it comes to higher education with Pell Grants and the GI Bill for Veterans. We already do it with uh, the Head Start program and other state-level pre-K programs. We should just do the same thing when it comes to K-12 education yeah. and have the money follow the child instead of the institution. And and, and that's a good, a good point you just made there a moment ago that I want to underscore for our folks because the federal government uh, wants to dictate what happens in our classrooms. We've seen that already in the Biden administration. 
But they only provide less than 8% of the funds that go into public education. It primarily comes from the property tax and sales tax of local communities. So you're paying the bill, folks, and you need to dictate or determine what's happening in your local community. And, and this is the best way to do it is pass legislation where the funds follow the student and simply don't go into the coffers of uh, the system. And, and Corey, uh, these pieces of legislation in these uh, various states uh, range from, you know, funding uh, private education, charter schools, to even homeschooling. So there's a, a wide variety of funding opportunities that are out there being debated and discussed across America. Yeah, totally. And the number one way to do this, and the majority of the bills that are out there right now, are things called education savings accounts. It's kind of like a voucher program where you can take the, a portion of the money that would have went to the public school and use it at a private school. But with education savings accounts, you could use the money for things like pandemic pods and microschools and homeschooling uh, costs. Uh, for, for listeners, a pandemic pod is a new term that came up this year, but it basically describes the idea of having five to ten children get together in a household in order to, for families to economize on the cost of home-based education. And education savings accounts would, would allow families to customize their children's educational experience in this way. Uh, and you have to use it for government-approved education expenditures so that families aren't uh, using the money in, in non-educational right. Right. ways. Corey, we're out of time, uh, but great conversation. Appreciate the work you're doing on this, and I'm going to make sure we've got a link not only to your article but to uh, the organizations you work with in advancing choice in education. I think it is one of the biggest issues facing our country, and if we can give parents who care about the future of their children greater involvement, it will be a tremendous dynamic in changing the direction of this country. So, Corey, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And, folks, thank you for being with us. And once again, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 